We come to you in prayer this morning, our Father, because you are God. As God, you are an infinite sentry and guardian watching over us and all things in this world. As God, you are sovereignly wise to know what we need and infinitely powerful to meet that need. As God, you are the righteous judge who will reward the righteous, those who trust you for salvation with eternal life. And you will condemn those who rebel against you and who do not worship you. As God, you are ever present, infinitely powerful and all knowing. Nothing escapes your notice. So you will hear our prayer, do what is wise and best for us, and always be with us to help us in our need. Our prayer this morning echoes the prayer of the psalmists. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. I said to the Lord, you are my God, give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. On the day that I called, you answered me, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. As the psalmist prayed to you in trust and faith, so we also pray, believing that you will answer. And you are not only God, but you are our God. We belong to you as redeemed sinners and enemies, as your servants and slaves, as your friends, and supremely as your children. You love us in every way and invite and even command us to come to you for help. We come to you in prayer this morning because you are our father. You are compassionate towards our plight. You love to meet our needs and you are infinitely capable of helping us. This morning we come to you with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. We have sung and read of the advent of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And we anticipate the further remembrance of Him in this month of reflection. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for His coming, His revelation of you, His gracious care of His people, His sinless life, His infinite wisdom, and His infinite love of you and us that took Him to the cross. We are grateful for His self-giving death his self-existent resurrection, and his self-exalting ascension to heaven and his co-regency with you on your eternal throne. And we are grateful for salvation, for your patience in our slow sanctification, for the gift of the Spirit to guide us, to gift us, and to empower us. And we are thankful for the privilege of serving you, though we are weak and imperfect people. We are grateful for the fellowship of the church body, For Christ's work to unify people who are diverse in background, but the same in salvation and the same in Christ. We are thankful for the experience of the love of Christ, experienced through the love of his body. And we are thankful for this particular church body in which we have experienced much love for many years. And saying that, we also ask that you would be gracious to preserve that love. This morning, we also come to you with needs in our lives and hearts. Would you be gracious to help us? The arrival of Christ reminds us of the importance of proclaiming the news of Christ, both in our community through evangelism and to the nations through missions. Would you give us attentiveness to conversations we have 
that can be turned into gospel opportunities? And would you give effectiveness to our missionaries as they build the church of Christ overseas? We pray particularly this morning for Jonathan and Sharon Moorhead and the new church plant in Geneva. We thank you for the strong response and the good start that they have had. And we ask that you would keep the leaders and body unified and loving, that you would make them effective in evangelism, and that they would care well through your power for their members. And while we are grateful for the remembrance of Christ at Christmas, some of us are entering this season more alone than in previous years. Family members, spouses, parents, or children have died in this year. It is a hard season that we've never had to navigate previously. Would you give grace and comfort to us not only to endure, but also to praise you in the midst of our grief? Similarly, some of us have walked alone through these seasons many times, and we are weary. Would you grant us endurance and persistence? Would you help us to live lives that are exemplary and worth imitating? And would you make our church body to be a body that cares well for those who are alone, not just at this season, but in every season? And we come with other needs and burdens as well. We have difficult relationships for which we need wisdom. We have financial pressures for which we need your provision. And we face temptations to sin for which we need your spirit to bear his fruit in us. In all these things and more, would you remind us of your faithfulness and grace and that you are a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering, always gracious God. And now would you also give us wisdom to hear, to be attentive to, and to be transformed by your word. Thank you for this revelation from your throne. Please change us by what we hear. In the name of Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 4. Let me read the first five verses for us. Paul's final letter, almost final words in this chapter to his beloved disciple, Timothy, who was in the Ephesian church, leading and shepherding it as their pastor and elder. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, Oliver Berkman writes this. The average human lifespan is absurdly, insultingly brief. Assuming you live to be 80, you have just over 4,000 weeks in your life. Nobody needs telling there isn't enough time. 
We're obsessed with our lengthening to-do lists, our overfilled inboxes, work-life balance, and the ceaseless battle against distraction. And we're deluged with advice on becoming more productive and efficient and life hacks to optimize our days. But such techniques often end up making things worse. The sense of anxiety, anxious hurry grows more intense and still the most meaningful parts of life seem to lie just beyond the horizon. And still, we rarely make the connection between our daily struggles with time and the ultimate time management problem. The challenge of how to best use our 4,000 weeks. And the problems we face as individuals are replicated in the church. There are only so many resources, so many people, so many hours, and the needs seem to surpass the, and, and the needs seem to surpass the, the the ability of the church to provide for those needs. And that's true not just at the church at large, it's true at Grace Bible Church as well. The Lord has graced us with many spirit-empowered, servant-hearted, grace-filled people. But needs and opportunities seem to outpace our ability. So how will we prioritize and what will we do as church and as individuals? And frankly, what should we do? This year, the theme for our ministry has been equipping the saints. And uh, it's been a reminder for us to continue pursuing excellence and preparing one another to serve Christ. And as we finish this year, we've been thinking about the topic more directly. We've been thinking about the goal in equipping others. We've been thinking about the people who equip. And we've been thinking about the character of the people who equip. And today I want to answer the question, how will we equip? What are we going to do in the weeks that the Lord has given us? And what we're going to find this morning in First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 4 is that all God's people are saved to serve Him. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you have been saved for the purpose of being engaged in His body and serving Him. But along with that, we're going to find this, that God's people will serve him well when they carefully administer God's truth. It's about caring for people by the ministry of the word. The word is what is essential. The word is what what is powerful. We read it earlier in Second Timothy chapter 2, right? Paul says, I'm willing to suffer hardship for Christ as a criminal, but the Word of God isn't imprisoned. For everything that's going on in this world and all the pushback against the church and Scripture, Scripture's not defeated, Scripture's not ineffective, Scripture's not inefficient. It is adequate. Ministry and caring for souls and discipling and building into others and equipping isn't easy. But the process is simple. What we need to do is uncomplicated. And that's what we're going to see again this morning. I want us this morning to observe three priorities for those who will equip others in the church body and in our church body. Just what is it that equippers will do? What what do we do as equippers? What's our priority? Three priorities, the first of which is given in verses one and two to equip others 
Be faithful with your doctrine. To be faithful with your doctrine. Here Paul is talking about the teaching ministry of equipping others. Of building into others. And he is addressing Timothy as an elder in the Ephesian church. But the principles that he gives in these verses are not just for elders. They're not just for Timothy in that context, in that setting. The things he's talking about are fitting for anyone who's going to spend any time discipling, equipping, training others, which is all of us, because we're all engaged in the process of building into the body. I want you to notice two principles in how to be faithful with your doctrine first, be Doctrinally faithful because of your accountability. Now, as we come to this text, we will see that the command that Paul gives is in verse 2, right? Preach the word. That is, what Timothy proclaims, teaches, and exhorts is the word of God alone. He doesn't use his own ideas, his own resource. He preaches God. And that's, that's Paul's priority for Timothy, it's Timothy's priority for the Ephesian church, it's for the priority for all churches, it's the priority for our church. I mean, it's even in our name, right? So Grace Bible Church, we preach the word. Why? Because of the accountability that we have been given. Paul's command in verse 2 is given in the context of an accountability. And in verse 1, he notes Four facets of accountability that we have, not Timothy to Paul, not us to Paul, but Timothy to the Lord, Paul to the Lord, and us to the Lord. Notice the accountability. Paul speaks, first of all, he says, I charge you, note this, in the presence of God. That is, the command that follows is given under God's authority Himself. This isn't Paul's idea. This isn't Paul's command. This isn't Paul's desire. This is God's desire, God's command, God's priority. This is, this is a command that comes from the throne of God. Notice this as well. It not only comes from the throne of God, but the command is given, Paul says, in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That is, Paul's directive is given with the knowledge that he, Paul, will be judged by God for his actions. And similarly, Timothy will be evaluated and judged by God for his faithfulness to this call. So the standard is not Paul's standard and the evaluation is not Paul's evaluation. The standard is God's and the evaluation comes from God. In fact, Jesus himself reminds us in his ministry in John chapter 5 that all, of, all uh, that God has given all judgment to the Son. That is the authority to judge and evaluate is given from the Father to the Son. That's his role. And just by way of reminder, as we think about this judgment that is coming from the Lord, there are three primary judgments that are coming from Christ and all of them are yet future. One is the separation of believers from unbelievers, the separation of sheep from goats. We find that in Matthew chapter 25. There is secondly the judgment of unbelievers into an eternal hell at the great white throne. We find that in Revelation chapter 20. And then there is a third judgment that comes from Christ. It is of believers for the purpose of giving reward. We find that in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. And it's that that is in view here. Paul is saying, remember that as you serve him, one day you will stand and give an account for your ministry 
And it will be for the purpose of dispensing reward. But you don't want to lose reward at that throne. And the point that Paul is making is that God is always evaluating. God is always judging our ministry and is according to his standard. It's not our standard. It's his standard. And in fact, he's going to reiterate that in verse 8. We'll see this next week. He says in verse 8, in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is a coming judgment. God's evaluating. God's discerning. God's determining whether our ministry is in alignment with his standards or our standards. When our children were little, it was not uncommon that I might say or Regine might say to them something like, I need you to clean your room this afternoon. And we would, depending on the age, give them directions. What does clean look like? And what are we particularly seeking? What kind of objective do we have when we say we want a clean room, right? That doesn't mean picking up one article of clothing off the floor. It means everything is tidy and in its place. And so after the designated time frame, I might go to them and say, Hey, girls, is the room clean? Yes, Daddy. Is it clean? And I don't know how many times I ask this. Is it clean according to your standard or mine? In other words, when I walk in your room, will I think it's clean? Head down, walking back to the room. That's God's test. The evaluation of not of our ministry is not, hey, how do you think you did? No, no, no. The evaluation is, how does the Lord think I did? He's the one who evaluates. It's his standard, not my standard. There's a third accountability that's given to us in verse 1. And it is that Paul's charge is given not only before Christ, but also in anticipation of his appearing. It's a reminder that Christ is coming soon and the believer wants to be found doing good, right and godly things on that day. Paul said in his first letter to Timothy, chapter six, that my goal is that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to be faithful until Christ comes. I want you doing Christ's work until the very day that he comes. And it's a reminder again that he's coming, he's coming to evaluate, and we need to persist in carrying out his ministry until that day. And similarly, he says at the end of verse 1, by his appearing and his kingdom. It's a reminder that he is not only coming, but he is coming as king. And he is coming to establish his kingdom so that those who are his will reign with him and serve him. In fact, our service now, is really in, in anticipation of what our service will be like in that kingdom for him. And so here's the implication that we want to draw from verse 1. When a preacher preaches, and when a disciple disciples, when a counselor counsels, when an Awana teacher teaches, it is always with this thought in mind. I stand in the presence of God under the authority and evaluation of Christ himself, who is coming for the people that this word is designed to prepare for holiness. 
Am I being faithful to that task, that priority, that anticipation? No, brothers and sisters, we need to be concerned about Christ's evaluation. Whenever we disciple, whenever we teach, whenever we train, whenever we equip, whenever we're pouring ourselves into the lives of another person, it could be one of those two and a half foot tall disciples that live at your house. Or it could be your next door neighbor or your coworker or the new believer that God has brought into your life. Whenever we do that, we always do it for an audience of one. It's God himself that will judge our messages. So, be doctrinally faithful. Be faithful to teach. Be faithful to teach the word because of our accountability. And then also he notes in verse 2, be doctrinally faithful because of your role. Because of your role. Notice verse 2. Timothy and we are exhorted to preach the word because of the work that only the word can do. Now, we've just parachuted into 2 Timothy and and you might just think, well, this is a standalone passage, but it's connected to everything that precedes and If you have forgotten what precedes it, just go up like two inches on that page and remind yourself of what the scriptures do. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right before this passage. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Only the scripture can do that. Nothing else works. It's only God's word. It comes with his authority and his power. And it can do everything that's in that in those verses. And because of that, chapter four, verse two, he says, preach the word. What else are you going to do? Veggie tales. Do they still play veggie tales? I don't know. Maybe it's. Thomas the train now, right? What else are you going to do? We preach the word because it is the only God-breathed, authoritative, life-giving message. There's nothing else like it. Only it can do what it promises to do. When Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, what does he mean, preach? Then we think about preaching as what I'm doing right now. And, and, and that's true. But at a more simple and basic level, it simply means to make a declaration. We train making declaration with the word of God. We're not philosophizing. We're not arguing. We're not motivating. We're not entertaining. We're declaring. And that happens whether it's from a pulpit in a corporate worship setting or you're meeting at Starbucks one-on-one with somebody else. You're declaring. You're, you're saying like the Old Testament prophets, thus says the Lord. We're mouthpieces for God. We're not declaring our own messages which are fallible, but we are speaking the inerrant, eternal, omnipotent word of God. And because there's nothing else like this message, brothers and sisters, we have nothing else to say. If you go back to my office, I have... I think, I don't remember the count, 18, 20, 25 file cabinet drawers filled with files. 
Almost all of them are stories and illustrations. I have, I think I, I estimated something on the neighborhood of 25,000 three by five cards with quotations and stories and all kinds of stuff. And tens of thousands of files on my computer. I, I have stories. I could entertain you. I could. It's powerless. Only this has the authority to change your life. And that's why we go here. Because there's nothing else. We have no other tool, no other, no other instrument that will be adequate. Notice that Paul not only says, preach the word, be rooted in the word, give declaration to the word and to the word alone, but then he notes this as well, be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular or un- in unpopular, when it's convenient or inconvenient, when it's easy or hard. In other words, we should be ready to administer the word of God in any given situation. Because sin and sinners are always, quote unquote, in season on the earth, then the word of God is also always in season. Because the word of God is the only answer to people's problems in this world. There's nothing else. It's the only antidote to sin. It's the only antidote to suffering. It's the only antidote to worship. For a time in our culture and in our world, certainly in the deep south, in the buckle of the Bible belt, as it were, it's been popular to be a Christian. Acceptable, even favorable at times. And that's changing. A few years ago, a headline after a mass murder of 14 people declared, quote, God isn't fixing this. It was an affront to the character and nature of God from a major newspaper. And those who teach the Bible will be mocked. And they can be expected to be persecuted for their faith, even suffering death. That was certainly the anticipation of the Apostle Paul. It's actually in this very context and passage. Chapter, tw- chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why will they be persecuted? Because they say, thus says the Lord. And people hate that. And we keep standing on the word of God and declaring its truth because the word and the gospel are men's only hope. It's been said that when it comes to religion, the crowds are always wrong. And that means that when you preach what the crowds want, you will always get it wrong. And you won't preach the gospel. Preach what the crowds want and God will not be honored. And God will reckon you deficient when he evaluates your ministry. And if we wait to preach until it's popular to preach, we will never preach because the Bible will never be popular with everyone. Brothers and sisters, we must continue to be bold and unflinching, unmoving from this inerrant word. And we do that because of what the word does. Be ready in season and out of season. Note what the word does. He said, with it, you can reprove, rebuke, and exhort to reprove means to, to convince, to reveal, to expose, to set right. To reprove someone points him away from sin and to repentance and to the hope of Christ. And it implies education and it implies discipline. And to rebuke someone 
means to reprimand and correct. It's to identify the sin clearly and not hesitate to call the sin, sin. And that, brothers and sisters, is at the heart of shepherding with the Word of God. We declare, teach, and disciple in a way that the Bible's corrective power is released. We don't do it angrily. We do it with compassion. Say, brother, I know the trajectory you're on. And I know why it seems appealing. It has seemed appealing to me too. But let me tell you, from Romans 6, that's not, that's not freedom, that's bondage. And let me show you a way out. And that's corrective, and that's reproof, and it's hope. And it actually moves us to the final word, exhortation. That word exhortation means encouragement. It's a challenge to someone to get them ready for battle. It's to come alongside and remind the hearer of everything that God has provided for us to make us strong. And you take these three commands together, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and you see the the breadth of the ministry of the Word of God and what it can do to help people. And brothers and sisters, it also reminds us That when we're declaring, when we're discipling, when we're equipping, we have different kinds of hearers. And part of our task as disciplers, equippers, trainers, declarers, preachers of the word is to ask the question, who's in front of me and what's the condition of their heart? Do they need reproof? Do they need a An alignment to get them going the right direction. Or do they need rebuke? You're in sin and you're unrepentant and you need to change. Or do they need exhortation? Are they just weak and helpless and they don't know and they're struggling and they need a buddy to come alongside them and pick them up and walk with them down the road? And they're all those kinds of people. And the Word of God is not only adequate for them, but as we're administering the Word of God, we need to be asking that question, who is that person in front of me? And how do they need the ministry of the Word? Our ministry should also be accompanied by a particular attitude. Notice the end of verse 2. It comes with great patience and instruction. We train patiently over and over and over with doctrine with instruction, because growth comes slowly. Is it just me, or do you also have this experience of three steps forward, two steps back? Or sometimes two steps forward, 12 steps back, right? I mean, that's, that's the nature of sanctification, right? It's not a straight line to Christ. And there's, we, we, we put variety in our sanctification process, right? That's a way of saying we struggle at times. And people do that. People you disciple be like that. And brothers and sisters, they need patience and persistence. And you endure with them and you keep you keep giving them the word of God. I don't I don't remember what happened on this particular day, but. When our children were small, I don't know, five, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there. Something happened one day. I don't remember what it was, but it was like it was it was like the 14th time that day. 
And I walked in and I'm getting ready to discipline. I don't even remember which one it was. And I said, why do you keep doing that? And my, my, my wife was right beside me. And I don't think she rolled her eyes. But she looked at me and very gently and quietly said, because they're just like you. They're sinners. And they struggle. Yeah. The fight against the flesh is slow at times and unending. We can't expect progress in ourselves and others, but we cannot expect perfection. Don't expect perfection. That won't come to glory. And we can be patient because we expect that progress will happen under the power and authority of the Scriptures and the Spirit. The simple command, preach the Word, is a reminder of what our role is. We're just helping people come to hear the message of Christ and His adequacy. It's nothing magical that we do in the ministry of the church. It's just pointing people to the Word of God over and over and over. It's a reminder that I don't change them. You don't change them. They don't change themselves. It's the Word that changes them. Martin Luther was asked on one occasion the reason for the success, the reason for the success of the Reformation. And he said... We simply preached and then we slept and while we slept, the word did its work. And that's what we do. It's not fancy. It is hard. It's not fancy. Just stay faithful to the truth of the word of God. There's a second priority for us. It's given in verses three and four to equip others. Be wary of unfaithful doctrine, to be wary of unfaithful doctrine. When I go to the grocery store or the drugstore, and it's dangerous for me to go to the grocery store, it drives the bill up really high. In spite of the fact that when I go to the grocery store, I try and look for generic brands so that I can avoid paying full price for the name brand, the big brand product. I'll look for the packages that say compare to, right? I'm looking for that. Though Regine has informed me that there is nothing to compare to Hellman's mayonnaise. There is no adequate generic product that compares to Hellman's mayonnaise. And if I'm going to buy it, I've just wasted that $2 because I'm just going to have to go back to the store and buy the $4 Hellman's. That's the rule in our house. In a similar way, there are gospel sounding teachings that are not the gospel. They purport to be the truth, but they are not the truth, and they do not have the power and authority of the truth. And just like there is only one mayonnaise in our home, there is only one gospel that will save people and minister the truth to them. And the church is called to protect, to keep, to defend the truth of God. That's actually Paul's theme idea in First Timothy where he says in chapter 3, verse 15, In case I am delayed, I write to you, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's our task. Uphold and defend the truth of God. And we find that idea repeated over and over 
in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And we are designed to protect and keep the doctrine of truth because there are so many attacks against it. In fact, if you read through the pastoral epistles, and I did that this week, I just quickly thumbed through these letters. Where does Paul address the gospel coming under attack in these letters? We don't have time to read it all. Eleven different passages in these three brief letters, Paul warns about those who are going to attack the truth of God. It's just a repeated theme over and over and over. And we see it in this passage. A time will come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. They want their ears tickled. They want to accumulate teachers in accordance with their own desires. They don't want truth. And we just find it over and over and over. And don't miss this. That false doctrine is always appealing and always attractive and always wrong and always will lead to a bad end. And in these two verses, verses three and four, Paul's emphasis is that people, people who are in the church. And it's not like the Ephesian church was like the Corinthian church, right? I mean, Corinth, you understand it. There were a multiplicity of problems in that church. But this is Ephesus. That even when Christ condemns them in Revelation chapter 2, He said, you've, you've uphold, upheld the truth. You've defended the truth. And they were sound in that. But here He warns that people will, in that church, in that context gravitate towards unbiblical ideas, doctrinal heresy, because people do not naturally want to hear the truth. Our hearts are inclined away from the truth. And when, when we deny the authority and necessity of Scripture, we will turn to anything instead of Scripture. We will look for and accept anything Rather than the truth of God. And frankly just, just look at the church in America today. And it's, it's really disheartening. To see the things that are done. In the name of Christ. I had an aunt call me uh, about a year ago. Email me about a year ago. What do I do? I'm in this church. This is the church that she and her husband planted uh, 40, 50 years ago. And I've got a real problem with the church because in worship we're being told to pray to God our mother. Yeah. And she's stuck. She's a widow. She has no transportation on her own. What do you say? <laughs> she said, I'm not sure how to approach the pastor she so okay, well, we've got a problem there. <laughs> and I said, here's, here's how I would appeal. My guess is they're not going to respond. You need to leave. It's an unfaithful church. And it's typical, right? I mean, it's, it's not terribly surprising because a time will come when they will not endure 
sound doctrine. That word sound is a word that we saw last week in Titus. It's a word that refers to that which is healthy, promotes spiritual strength. And that which will make them healthy is rejected by them. It's like the man who knows that he's sick with cancer and he won't go to the doctor because he doesn't want to hear what the doctor has to say. They reject it out of hand. I don't want to hear the message. They, they refuse to hear the truth. They prefer blindness to light. They don't want their sin and their true spiritual condition exposed like the, like the six-month-old you play peekaboo with. You know, it's, it's, it's behind, behind that um, blanket. It ceases to exist. So they don't endure sound doctrine. It's even worse than that. They want to have their ears tickled. They're like the animal that likes to have its ears scratched so that it feels good. They want novel and fun and intriguing stories to make them feel satisfied and to help them avoid the truth of their real condition. It gets even worse than that. They will accumulate, he says in verse 3, end of verse 3, teachers in accordance with their own desires. That word desires is always used by Paul in the pastoral letters to refer to sinful fleshly lusts. They want teachers to tell them, you can engage in this lust and it's okay. They don't want anyone with authority over them to correct them, so they gather teacher after teacher after teacher. That word accumulate means they just stack them one on top of another. They keep looking, they keep gathering, they keep bringing in additional teachers who will tell them to indulge their fleshly sinful lusts and say it's okay. As if the accumulation of more heretical teachers gives credence to the heresy. And because of that, notice verse 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They turn away from the truth and they turn to untruth. It's not just that they reject Christ. That's abominable enough, but it's that they embrace heresy in the place of Christ. Myths, stories, speculations. That idea actually permeates the pastoral epistles as well. You, 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 you've cultivated all these myths and ideas and stories about genealogies and all this stuff happening in the Old Testament. It's disconnected from the truth. And it's all given so that you can indulge in your sinful desires. And they have turned aside to them. That is, they've followed them. They've begun to obey that new teaching and cultivated a new pattern of life. And they've rejected Christ for new ideas that make them feel good and don't correct their sinful behaviors and inclinations. Oh, brothers and sisters, we must be wary that there is a tremendous danger that the natural man is repulsed by truth and the redeemed man, if he allows his flesh an opportunity, will slide back into the abyss of the sinfulness of sin. The flesh is always bent that way. And we must keep rooted in the word and in the spirit. So when we disciple, when we equip, when we counsel, when we teach, when we preach, it is to be faithful with the word because only the word can change the disciple. And because the disciple is being bombarded with temptations to go away. So to equip others, be wary of unfaithful doctrine. Lastly, to equip others, be faithful with your life. That the teacher and equipper is to be faithful with his teaching and doctrine is particularly emphasized 
in the pastoral epistles. But Paul also exhorts Timothy to be careful with how he lives. Chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Timothy, he says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, yourself, your life, to your teaching, your doctrine, and persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. It's an exhortation. Be careful about yourself. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you teach and be careful how you live. Why? Why is it so important that you get the doctrine right and the living right? I mean, if you, if you get the doctrine right, isn't that enough? No, no, no. You've got to live right because people are watching. And they're going to emulate. And Paul says that's appropriate. First, First Corinthians chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. It's appropriate to imitate others. But that also means that we always need to be wary of having an imitatable life. So be faithful, we might say, for the sake of others. In what ways should we be faithful with our lives? And Paul points to four Attributes of a faithful life. It's not everything, but here he points to four attributes of a faithful life in verse 5. The first is this. Be faithful in watchfulness. Be faithful in watchfulness. But you, he says to Timothy, be sober in all things. To be sober is to be awake, alert, attentive. It's to be watchful. It's To quote-unquote, keep your head in every situation. It's to take life seriously and to recognize the seriousness of life. He's sobered by the subtlety of temptation, the nature of life, and the purpose of his own life. So he's always watching. He's always on guard. He's always attentive. He never lets his guard down. So the Puritan John Owen said, watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and vantages of sin in the world, that we not be entangled. Always watchful. Always vigilant. And notice that he says, be sober in all things. He watches everything related to his personal life and everything that he's doing in ministry. He's always on the lookout. He's always on duty. He's always attentive. Why? Verse 1. Because he's accountable to God. And verse 2, 3, and 4. Because hell is at stake in those who are watching him. Effective equippers are always watching over their own lives and hearts and watching out. For the souls of others. Be be faithful in watchfulness. Be faithful in endurance. Life is hard. Suffering is long. Difficulties are almost always multiplied. Temptations are ever present. And the temptation to give up. Is huge. So Paul says to Timothy, who evidently was enticed in this way to give up, endure hardship. 
He is making the assumption when he says that, that life will be hard. He's making the assumption that when life is easy, that's abnormal. The norm is hardship. And that's not just true for Paul, is it? That's true in your life as well, isn't it? It's hard. It's a struggle. It's a battle. And when the norm is hardship, how do you respond? Paul says, the normative response to hardship is endurance. Endurance is a, an inward resolve to persist in the outward battle against spiritual enemies. It's really notable that this letter appears to have come to Timothy right before he was imprisoned. And after he was released, the writer of the Hebrews addresses that and speaks of his being released from prison. But before he went in, Paul reminds him, it's not going to be easy, Timothy. Hang on. Endure. Persist. This call to endurance can be difficult. John Piper has written, The 21st century will not be an easy time to be a Christian. It is not meant to be easy, but we are not left without help. The Bible centers on a crucified, risen, and reigning Christ and is full of promises for every crisis. And the history of God's church is full of empowering examples of those who prove the grace of God is sufficient to enable us to endure to the end And to be saved. The call to endurance is difficult. But it is attainable. So Paul writes to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap. If we do not grow weary. You don't have to grow weary. You don't have to give up. Christ's power is enough. One of my spiritual heroes has preceded me to heaven by, I think, four centuries. Thomas Watson, in his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, he writes this about one pastor. Dr. Taylor comforted himself while he was going to the stake, saying... I have but two styles to go over. And I shall be at my father's house. Christians, Watson writes, you have but a little way to go. A little more violence. A few more tears to shed. A few more Sabbaths to keep. And then your hopes shall be crowned with the beautiful sight of God. You endure and you hang on and he will take you home. Be faithful in watchfulness, be faithful in endurance, be faithful in evangelism. And so he says, do the work of an evangelist. When he says that, we don't know whether or not Timothy had the gift of evangelism. Regardless, Paul reminded him of the priority of evangelism. When you are sober and when you are watchful and when you are enduring in life, you recognize this necessity. It's the only thing that's going to help us. 
the gospel as it is revealed in the word of God. And so what is it that an evangelist does? He is someone who proclaims the good news. He declares there is one way under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. You must be saved. That's the only way. Evangelism is the fuel that stoked the fire of the early church. We find it all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Chapter 11 so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And over and over in the book of Acts, we just find it just saturated with people that are going around and preaching about the forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus Christ. That's evangelizing the evangelist doesn't save the individual christ saves the individual the evangelist is simply saying this is the way to life you want to go and here's life and it's possible in the context of the church and especially a good church to get into the cocoon of the saved community and forget the lost who are perishing and like timothy it's tempting to be intimidated and he was intimidated we see that in chapter one it's tempting to not persist in evangelism and ministry and whatever else we do, we must not lose track of the fact that every day people are dying and every day many of those people, most of those people are going to hell. And we must have compassion towards them. And we must remember that the only reason, one of the primary reasons that we are left on earth is so that we can declare to the lost the way to life and so that they might hear the truth of the message of the gospel. Oh, friend, as you're equipping others, be faithful in evangelism. Lastly, be faithful in using your gift or gifts. Paul's final admonition, verse 5. Simple words, fulfill your ministry. That is, you have gifts of the Spirit you have a role in the body of Christ, use your gift so you're effective in that role. Don't quit. God's placed you there. God's put you in a particular place in that church body, given you the gifts, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the body. Use them. It's interesting that that's one of the final statements in Paul's final letter because it's also one of the first statements he makes in this letter Chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. At the beginning of the book and the end of the book, he says, you've got a gift, use it. Don't stop. And the word that he uses here in verse 5 of chapter 4 for ministry is very broad. It refers to every mode of service in the church. Whatever your role is, he says to Timothy, fulfill that role. And that's a good reminder to us, thinking about 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 and all the different kinds of people that are in the body of Christ, that whether we are a hand or a foot or an eyeball or a pancreas, whether we have the gift of administration or helps or faith or teaching, wherever we've been placed by God, we want to use that gift, graced by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Word of God, to finish the task that God has given us. Paul is not saying with this, convert everyone in your family or community. He's not saying with this, disciple everyone in your church so that everyone is free from sin. Those are only works that God can do. But he is saying, whatever the results, you continue to be faithful in carrying out what God has given you to do. Keep going. If you were to live to age 80 you have 4,160 weeks in your life. Sounds like a big number. I mean, 4,000, it would take you a while to count to 4,000. Most of us have fewer than 4,160 left. I mean, some, some of you are going to live longer than 80. Some of you are going to live less than 80. Most of us have less than that 4,160. I checked this week to see what I have left. If I live to 80, I'm under 1,000 left. That was sobering. Time's getting short. What will you and I do with the years and the weeks that the Lord has given us? Given the need of the moment and the brevity of time, we will be faithful with our teaching and faithful with our lives. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this ministry. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people who love Christ. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. Might we never be distracted from the one singular thing that is going to change people's lives. And that is the Word of God. The Word of God that reveals the Gospel of God the sanctifying power of God and the gifting of the Spirit of God to bring about our change. The world says there are all kinds of different avenues. And many in the church have bought into some of those ideas. Oh, Father, would you enable us, equip us to stand firm on this word so that we might never deviate so that we would all, always, in whatever equipping context you have given us, be faithful to preach, declare, and give the hope of the singular Word of God alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.